we're, we're working through our new series. This is our second week in our new series. And um, this series from all the way through Lent to Easter, I know Lent hasn't started yet, but this is going to take us all the way through that, is through Ezra up to Lent and then in Nehemiah through Lent up to Palm Sunday. And this series is going to be taking us through, the, 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 we've established at the moment that we as God's people are in exile, we can't meet here. But we're pilgrims, not tourists. And whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, we need to be seeking what God's doing in the midst of it. It's very easy at the moment to feel victims to the, to the circumstances that we find ourselves in. But as we looked last week at the providence of God, ultimately God is in charge. That Not everything that happens is as well. Of course it isn't. People suffer and die. Jesus deals with this in, in, um, uh, on many occasions. But what is it that God has for us as we make our way through this season? One of the things that has, has struck me is how, um, as I've been getting ready for this series, is the wealth of resources that are now available online. There's so much information now available um, for biblical studies, for preaching, you have just so many things. Many of you are joining us. The only reason that you can be with us is because you can watch this online. And one of the most profound online resources that we have has been provided for us by the Bible Project. The Bible Project is based in Portland in the northwest of the United States, um, a city that's been in the news a lot over the last year, not always for good reasons. But um, in Portland, uh, there's two guys who met at Bible College, John Collins and Tim Mackey, who have put together uh, a thing called the Bible Project. Some of you will have seen, I've referred to them many times. We went through Acts and Romans and other books too. And for these books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they have an introductory video for every book in the Bible. And they are so good. Now, I know I, I speak to some of you and you say, this goes a bit fast for me. And I understand that. However, there is a repeat button. And actually, you can even get YouTube to slow down how fast it plays things. But what I'd like to do now is for the next eight and a half minutes or so is play you the Bible Project's uh, introduction to Ezra and Nehemiah. And as I do so, I want to say a huge thank you to Tim Mackey and to John Collins and all the team who put this together and to Lindsay at the Bible Project who kindly got back to our email giving us permission to use these materials in our live stream. Can't tell you how thankful we are and our prayers are with you. Um, as, you, as you carry forward this extraordinary ministry, sharing uh, God's Word, the, 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 this extraordinary narrative that leads to Jesus in the Bible. And thank you so much for everything that you've done. If you get to see that, we are so appreciative here in Gorebridge Parish. So, I hope you enjoy this. As I say, it'll take about eight and a half minutes. If you've watched it already, this will be a good refresher. If you haven't, then you're about to discover what's really in this book of Ezra, Nehemiah. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah 
In most modern Bibles, these books are separate, but that division happened long after it was written. It was originally a unified work written by a single author. The story is set after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and its temple and took many of the people into exile. And this book picks up about 50 years later and tells the return of some Israelites to Jerusalem and then what happened when they rebuilt the city and their lives there. Specifically, the book focuses on three key leaders who led the rebuilding efforts. You have Zerubbabel, then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And the book's design focuses on the efforts of each leader. Zerubbabel leads a large group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Then about 60 years later, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem to teach the Torah and rebuild the community. And then he's followed by Nehemiah, who leads the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. And these three stories are designed to be parallel. Each begins with the king of Persia, prompted by God to send the leader to Jerusalem, and he offers resources and support. And then each leader encounters opposition in their efforts, which they then overcome, but in a way that leads to a strange anticlimax in each of the three parts. Let's back up and see how it fits together. So the story begins with a decree from Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he's moved by God to allow the exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And the author says this fulfills a promise made by the prophet Jeremiah that the exiles would one day return to Jerusalem. Now, this fulfillment should trigger our hopes in the many other prophetic promises that exile was not the end of the story. We have hope for a future messianic king from the line of David. We have hope for a rebuilt temple where God's presence will dwell with his people. Hope for God's kingdom to come over all the nations and bring his blessing, just like he promised Abraham. And so it's with all these hopes in mind that we read on into the story of Zerubbabel. His name means planted in Babylon. He represents the generation born in Babylonian captivity, and he leads a wave of Israelites returning to Jerusalem. After they settle there, they rebuild the altar for offering sacrifices and later the temple itself. The foundation laying ceremony and then the temple's final dedication, these are key moments. The past stories of the tabernacle and temple's dedication should be in our minds. This is when the fiery cloud of God's presence is supposed to descend, he's dwelling with his people, and it doesn't happen. And so while some people are happy about this new temple, the elders who had seen the previous temple of Solomon, they cry out in grief. It is nothing like their glorious past or their hopes for the future. And it's right here that we get the first story of opposition, and it's very odd. So the grandchildren of the Israelites who were not taken into exile, they had been living in Jerusalem all along, they come to offer help with the temple rebuilding. And Zerubbabel refuses. He says, you have no part in our temple. And this, of course, generates a conflict which Zerubbabel overcomes, but it's very strange because the prophets had envisioned that the tribes of Israel would all come together along with all of the nations to participate in the worship of the God of Israel when the kingdom finally comes. So this is an anticlimactic moment to say the least. In the next section, we zoom forward about 60 years and we're introduced to Ezra. He's a leader among the exiled Israelites in Babylon. And he's a Torah scholar and a teacher. And so he gets appointed by Artaxerxes, king of Persia, to lead another wave of people back to Jerusalem. And Ezra wants to bring about spiritual and social renewal among the people. Our hopes are high. And again, we come to another anticlimactic moment in the story. Ezra learns that many of the exiled Israelites that had come back, they had married married non-exiles who had been living around Jerusalem. Some of them were non-Israelites, and almost certainly some of them were. 
Ezra then appeals to the commands of the Torah that Israel was supposed to be holy and separate from the ancient Canaanites. And he then says that the people living around Jerusalem are like the Canaanites. They're going to corrupt the exiles. So Ezra offers a prayer of repentance, and it's very heartfelt. But then he rallies all the leaders and enacts this divorce decree that says all these marriages should be annulled, the women and children sent away. And then the decree is only partially carried out. We're given a list of some of the men who divorced their wives. The story is very strange for a number of reasons. First of all, God never commanded Ezra to do any of this. It was the leaders of Jerusalem who led Ezra to make the decree. Second, the contemporary prophet Malachi, he did say that the exiles should care about purity, but he also said that God was opposed to divorce. And so the mixed results of the decree, this all fits into this pattern of a strange concluding anticlimax. Which leads us to the next section about Nehemiah. He's an Israelite official serving in the Persian government, and when he hears about the ruined state of Jerusalem's walls, he prays and then gets permission from the Persian king Artaxerxes to go and rebuild the walls. The king even gives them an armed escort and all these resources. So after arriving in Jerusalem, he begins the building project, and he too faces opposition from the people who had already been living around Jerusalem. Once again, we face a tension in the story. The contemporary prophet Zechariah said that the new Jerusalem of God's kingdom would be a city without walls, that God's presence would surround it, that people from all nations would come and join the covenant people. But Nehemiah seems to operate with the opposite vision. He informs the people surrounding Jerusalem that they have no part in Jerusalem. And this, of course, provokes them to hostility. And so while Nehemiah carries out his vision for the city with integrity and courage. They have to build the city with armed guards to protect them. We keep wondering, could this whole conflict have been handled differently? And this all leads to the conclusion of the book in two movements, first positive and then negative. Ezra and Nehemiah combine forces to bring about a spiritual renewal among the people. They gather all the exiles together for a festival. They read and teach the Torah to all the people for seven days. And then they celebrate the ancient Feast of Tabernacles to remember God's faithfulness from the Exodus and the wilderness journeys. Then they offer a confession of their sins. They vow themselves to renew the covenant, follow all the commands of the Torah. And they finish with a great celebration over the temple, the walls of Jerusalem, and we're thinking this could be the turning point, but it's not. The book ends on a huge downer. Nehemiah tours around the city, and he finds that the people have not been fulfilling their covenant vows. So Zerubbabel's work is undone as he finds the temple being neglected and staffed by all these unqualified people. He then discovers that Ezra's work is being compromised. He finds everyone violating the Torah, people are working on the Sabbath, and even his own work on the walls is involved because people are setting up markets around the walls of Jerusalem and working on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah, he goes on a rampage. He's beating people up. He's pulling out their hair and he's yelling, obey the commands of the Torah. And his final words are a prayer that God would remember him, that at least he tried and the book ends. I mean, it's very strange, but we've been prepared for it, right? These anticlimactic moments have been woven into the book's design intentionally. And so it raises the question, what on earth does this book contribute to the storyline of the Bible? Well, remember, the book started by raising our hopes in the prophetic promises about the Messiah, the temple, the kingdom of God, and then none of it happens. 
So even though Israel is now back in the land, their spiritual state seems unchanged from before the exile. And while Ezra and Nehemiah, they do their best, but their political and social reforms among the people don't address the core issues of their heart. So what the book is pointing out is the same need highlighted by the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. What God's people need is a holistic transformation of their hearts if they're ever going to love and obey their God. And so the book ends on a downer, yes, but it forces you to keep reading on into the wisdom and prophetic books to find out what is God going to do to fulfill his great covenant promises. But for now, that's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, wonderful. As you can see, there's lots in here, and we'll be working our way through the stories. And we're in that first third of the story where Zerubbabel um, brings back the first, uh, the first group of exiles to return to Jerusalem. Let's read there now from Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of God, the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and to the carpenters and gave them food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by the sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, the king of Persia. And in the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, all who had returned from captivity in Jerusalem, began the work. They appointed Levites, 20 years old and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Henadad, and they're all their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with their trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, they took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. And with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid 
while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. So the promise had been made in this rebuilding and renewal that Ezra is, um, uh, that, that Ezra and Nehemiah is recounting. The promise is being fulfilled that Jeremiah spoke of here in Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will come back to you and fulfill my promise to bring you back to this place. So they're coming back with expectation. They're coming back with expectation. And there's so much to cover here. Firstly, there's the rebuilding of the altar, and then there's the rebuilding of the temple. What to... It's hard for us to imagine how dislocating that was for the Jewish people. Because once Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the temple, uh, the first temple, Solomon's temple in Jerusalem, and the Israelites were carried off in in, uh, exile, those burnt offerings and sacrifices stopped. Much of the information that was held in the covenant in the book of Leviticus, all of those detailed instructions as to what to do, that had stopped. They could still celebrate the festivals, but the festivals weren't celebrated around the temple anymore, which, remember, was supposed to be God's throne on earth. As you approached the temple, you were approaching the place where the manifest presence of God was to be found. From this verse here, Um, in Ezra 3 and verses 2 and 3. Let's read it again. And Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord. So this is the start again. This is the the re-establishing of the of the patterns and holy habits and and the things that would have been at the center of the life of Jerusalem before Nebuchadnezzar had had it destroyed, and they went into exile, and now they'd had this this fallow time where these things were not happening. And now they start up again. And this is so important because this is a huge part of the expectation of the Jewish people as they celebrate their festivals together. And that hope that rises in them is because they're doing what God had called them to do. And they see in what Cyrus has permitted, the hand of God, as we, as we spoke last week, working in their midst. So, despite their fear, the peoples round about, despite the statement that it was, because the Jewish nation and Jewish worship were all tied up one with another, they got back to the business of doing what was spoken of in the Law of Moses. And those books, and the Law of Moses, that's, Exodus, uh, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. Those books of Moses that were the Torah, the central tenets of the Jewish faith, still are that bound the people together and gave them their sense of their particular and special calling to be a light to the nations and to bring the hope of the one true and living God into a world that was broken and fallen. So this is a, 
a, a, a restarting of that which had stopped. And they go on um, with the foundation of the temple. Is just this. You can see how the passage of time works through Ezra and Nehemiah. And sometimes things aren't in order either, just in case you spot that. But when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with their trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, referring back to Levites, the Kohanim, have a listen to the second week if you haven't, of Advent. We've got something to say there about uh, the Kohanim and the Levites, with symbols, took their place to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. Here it is established in the history of David the king, the one whom the, who took that tabernacle that was built and envisioned the building of a temple, and his son Solomon would do that. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. And if you get a moment uh, later in the day, just look up where that phrase, He is good, and His love endures forever, how often that's repeated in the Scriptures. That is a reminder of God's goodness to them and what… Um, the, the continuity of what had gone before and what was happening now. And then he continues. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Many of the older priests and the Levites and the family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid while many others shouted for joy. Tim does a great job of, of narrating through the complexity of what's happening here because the temple is rebuilt. There's a rebuilding, and they're looking for the renewal, and they know that when Moses' tabernacle was built, the cloud of the presence entered there. Moses could meet with God as a man meets with his friend, it says in uh, Exodus 33, and then out Moses would come, and eventually they had to get him to to veil his face because so bright on him was a sense of God's presence. And then with the dedication of the temple that we read about in Chronicles and Solomon making sure that the de dedication of the temple goes as intended and the cloud of the presence falls and there's if it, oh, just an incredible passage in the Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways. I'll turn my face to them from heaven and heal their land. And those promises. And here they build this, the foundation for the second temple is built. Here it is in their midst. And they start to worship. And for those who didn't know any better, things are going great. But for the older people, they're waiting, looking for the cloud of the presence to appear. And it does not appear. And they're in this, in this moment this moment where everything is gathered up, everything, all their hopes and dreams, all their aspirations, they're all there. And for some of them, they think, yes, this is it. This is breakthrough. This is the moment we've been waiting for. But for those who knew the glory of the former temple, something is missing. Something's missing. Now, the return to Jerusalem is God's providence. Events in the wider world, the decision of Cyrus to start sending people groups back to their 
of places of origin, that is at work here. And you can see that, and the writer of Ezra and Nehemiah is encouraging us to see in that and in the actions of Cyrus's successors as we make our way through from Zerubbabel's story to Ezra's story to Nehemiah's story. As all of this is happening, we're being asked to believe that God is at work in the events here. So the fact that the cloud of the presence does not descend is a part of the narrative that we are meant to take as being God's work in the world, and we've got to watch that and listen to that carefully. You see, the people have returned to Jerusalem. They've turned to Jerusalem, which, as we've said, is the place of the presence. That's where a Jewish person would expect to be closest to God's presence. Yes, they knew that God was everywhere. They knew that the presence of God was throughout creation. But they also knew that in the Old Testament, in the the books of Moses, that God walked with Adam in the cool of the day, that Moses met with God in the tabernacle, that God spoke to Solomon from out of the cloud, that these moments of meeting had been there, and the Ark of the Covenant was in the old temple, the throne of God, and that was the place where people would expect to draw near to in order that God would speak to them. As we went through Um, As we went through Advent, we shared the story of Zechariah serving in the temple, and the angel of the Lord speaks to him, speaks God's words to Zechariah that that Sarah, that sorry, there's a slip, that Elizabeth would have a son, and he would herald the coming of the one who was promised. So it's the place of the presence, and they've returned to Jerusalem, and they're doing this in obedience, and this is God's timing for them but something is also missing. It is a return to God's Word as they understand that they're they're not just understanding the, the burnt offerings and the sacrifice and the worship in the temple as this all starts again. And then as you move into chapter 4, and there's the Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, celebrating God's rescue and provision for them in the wilderness. It's a return to God's Word. They're starting to live these things, but that had just been shared among them. They're living them. And that means they've returned not just to the place of the presence, but they've returned to the place of the promise. And they have also returned. It's God's will that they return. This is the place of the fulfillment of God's purpose. Here they are in Jerusalem, the place of the presence, the place of the promise, the place of God's purpose for them. Here they are starting again to do what they are intended to do as a people, and yet something is missing. And as you understand the bigger narrative of this story, That second temple era is intended to give… It's it's not the whole fulfillment of the promise of Jeremiah and his return. It's not the whole fulfillment of Isaiah and his understanding of when the lion will lie down with the lamb, of the suffering servant who will come. It's part of it, but it is not the fulfillment of it. We know where that goes. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone or the foundation stone. That 
messianic understanding of the psalmist of who Jesus is is central in the New Testament to their understanding of Jesus. And it's important as we read these stories and as we understand God's work through the Jewish people and we remember that Jesus was a Jew, that He came to fulfill this narrative, but that this isn't an arcane, an old narrative that just happens to be the origins of Jesus' people. It's not just a history lesson. It is part of the great arc of the story in which Jesus finds His place, and indeed, Jesus is the zenith of this story. And even though that's 2,000 years ago for us, because we live in the presence of the risen Jesus, that fulfillment is as true today as it was true on that first day of the resurrection. It's really important to understand that, that the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is the last of the historical books that gives us the story of the people from whom will come the Messiah, the one who's promised, the anointed one, the king, the priest, and the prophet. And so as we gather to worship, as we gather here in this place from all around the world, it's great to see Samuel Kong with us again um, from Cambodia. As we gather ourselves together from all over the world, as we do that, we do so in the name and in the presence of the one who fulfills this story. Never lose sight of that. But because Jesus fulfills this story, it doesn't make this story obsolete. It makes it foundationally important for understanding what it was that Jesus has done for us. God gives this mission to the Jewish people, but they are unable to fulfill it. I've been thinking about something this week, uh, about a pattern there is in the patriarch's names. And I'll maybe say more of this in the weeks to come. But there we have, we, we talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we think what these, na- these words mean in the Hebrew. He's the God of the father of many nations, the God of laughter, so that's Abraham and Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the cheat. The God, the God of the father of many nations, the God of laughter, and the God of the cheat, the swindler, the twister, the one who you wouldn't want to play at cards or for that matter, share your flocks with, as Uncle Laban finds out, or as Esau finds out, sharing an inheritance. Look at that ark. Starts in vision and hope, continues in joy and laughter, and then something goes wrong. And that's our experience in this world, that we gather around the vision and we gather around the wonder of it, But then things happen that are tough, and that's rooted right there. It's ground into the story of the Jewish people, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in whose line Moses, Moses stands. Moses stands, and his books lay out that story. And here in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we see this played out again. Friends, We often experience this in our lives, and God is always calling us to return. He's the Father of us all. He gives of His his joy, but we wander off. 
this pattern of the patriarch names. We wander off in, uh, and, and we, we, we cheat, we swindle, we get caught in sin, we get caught, sometimes we get caught in fear, we suffer, whatever it may be, and it draws us away from the presence of our Father. It draws us away. Where's our focus right now? Where's, who is at the core of our being and our plans? And if it's not Jesus, something's gone wrong. We need to return to holy habits. When we, when we sense ourselves drifting or we find ourselves one morning and we think, I don't sense God's presence. I'm like the older people who don't see the cloud of the presence entering into the temple. And I'm with the wailing folks, not the rejoicing folks. How do we re-engage, return to holy habits? Get ourselves in the right place. Return. Let's have a look at that. We need to ask ourselves the question, am I willing to go where the Spirit leads? Am I trying to get God to bless my best plans? Am I laying out my future plans for myself and asking God to, to give them a kind of sheen of blessing? Or am I actually saying, your kingdom come, your will be done in my life as it is in heaven, in our lives, the life of our family, our church, our community? Am I willing to go where the Spirit leads? Am I willing, in terms of my work, in worship and sacrifice, to be obedient, to find that place where, am, am I working at the things that God has for me? Am I worshiping Him regularly? Am I willing to do whatever it takes to have the love and the power of God at work in my life? Am I prepared to be obedient? Or am I drifting off to be lukewarm or even cold? drifting off into exile. The parable of the wise and foolish builder gives us, um, helps us understand this. Think about those two. Jesus is talking about two builders. Two builders, people who are building. And they're building for their future. They're building a home. But the foolish builder is prepared to build what they think they need. And the wise builder is prepared to think about where he is building. Where he's building. It frightens me how easy it is for us to build and to stray and to walk away be it life events, sometimes it is just as little as a night's sleep or a troubling dream, or we just wake up in the morning. As a scout, to get our advanced scout award, we had to do an overnight hike. Um, it was not a very well-planned overnight hike. We started in Loch Lomond side, a friend, my friend Philip and I, and we pitched our tent. We wandered off. We pitched our tent. We, 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 we bunked down for the night. When we got up in the morning, we did not take a compass bearing. We thought we'd figured out which way we needed to go. And we were so wrong that we did something that I never, ever managed to do again. It's really quite tricky to do. But eventually, we figure out that we're lost. We find the big house. And there's a guy on a ride-on mower. And we stop him. 
And it's so hard for guys to ask this question, but to say, I'm lost, can you help me? We ask this guy to help us. And we open up our ordnance survey map. Those of you who are, will remember ordnance survey maps. Um, I knew one or two people who had the entirety of the United Kingdom in ordnance survey maps. It made a great big, uh, the, the scout headquarters had that. And you hiked with your, sheet 66 I think was the local one for here. And we opened out our, our ordnance survey map that the scouters had given to us. And the guy stops his mower and he says, lads, you've walked off the edge of the map. You're down here. The, the, the map was here. And you're off down here somewhere. We'd actually managed to walk off the map. We were so disorientated by one night's sleep. And we didn't check our bearings in the morning that we walked off the edge of the map. How often is that like us? That we wake up and we think, right, we'll get on with the day. But we don't check in. We don't take that moment to reestablish a connection with our Father in heaven, and off we go. And we so quickly end up like the foolish builder, because we don't build on the foundation that God's given us. We aren't in the place doing the work, taking the time to integrate by our own free will into the plans and purposes that God has for us. The other question is this, how close at the moment am I prepared to allow my Father in heaven? Maybe for some of the worshipers at the new temple there, God was close enough. They were just doing the right thing. They were ticking the boxes. They were getting things done. But for the older people there, the older, wiser people, that thing that was missing was that sense of the imminent presence of God. And we must ask ourselves, How prepared am I? How prepared are we to allow the Father's will to be opened up to us? Now, it can be tough to figure it out, but are we prepared to do that? Is there anything more important? Have other plans or other fears or other priorities gotten in the way of allowing the Father's love to draw near to us? That reminds me of the story in Mark Mark chapter 10 of the rich young ruler who has kept the law. And it says Jesus looks on him with love. Friends, he walks away. When Jesus looks on you with love, don't walk away. Stay there. Stay in that moment. Stay in his presence. Stay. And if we find ourselves in that position of walking away, do I need to repent? And as we've said so many times before, when I repent, yes, it's about sorry and a sense of of, of moral guilt, but more importantly, it's about go a different direction. Put the bottle down. Stick the powder down the loo. Think before you speak. Stop hurting. Stop abandoning. Stop cursing. Stop walking away. Repentance is about a return, a change of direction. And whenever we change direction, if we are truly repenting, 
We will always leave from something that's caught up in our own will or some worldly thing, and we will be making our way back to Jesus, only to find that He is already making His way towards us, the lost sheep. As Dan was reminding me the other day, we like sheep have gone astray. Oh, yes, we have. When? When we return, when we return, we are caught up by the Father in the truth of His Word and His love. We experience the power of His cross, of Jesus' cross, to break in us, to sort out what these people could only dream of. And then, And then the infilling of the Spirit comes. And instead of being like the second temple, where the presence of God was not manifest, we become like the tabernacle, where everybody can see the cloud on the tent. And I pray this day that for all of us, that we have a sense of the Father's enveloping love as Jesus' forgiveness and rescue from guilt and shame and brokenness and pain pours in through the power of the cross. And then, of course, that the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of the Father through the Holy Spirit infills us and refreshes us again so that if there's any weeping, they will be tears of joy. That's where God calls us to be. And that's the place from which it's so easy to drift. And the Father says, return. Repent, change direction, come back. So many of those rich verses. When Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. For you, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Why? Because it's shouldered up with Him right beside us. I know as I talk about rebuilding, some of you will be thinking about the church redevelopment still happening. But more important than that, this building is just a tool for doing the work that God has for us. Much more important is how, how the presence of God is found here. Will people come here? Will they experience the Father? Will they experience Jesus in our actions and in our words and in our affections? Will they have the power of the Holy Spirit envelop them as they tread into the threshold here? And I would rather have a ramshackle building full of the presence of God than some bright, shiny new project that was devoid of it. But I'm praying we have both. And that means that we need to be asking for Jesus to guide us as to what the next season of this church's life will look like. I've been here 21 years. I tend to see things in seven-year stretches. It's a biblical season. The year of Jubilee, that you'll read in Ezra and Nehemiah, that they took on that seven-year um, cycle. And then at the seven, seven's the year of Jubilee, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. But that three seven-year cycles we've been here, and trusting that God will show us what the next season will look like. For friends, 
We are pilgrims, not tourists. And Jesus seeks to rebuild and renew us and rebuild and renew through us into a broken world that has been lost, has been lost in the cheating of Jacob and yet will return to the purpose given by the Father of many nations in the joy and laughter of Isaac. Where are we today? It might be that, that you and Jesus are like that this morning. And if so, brilliant. But if, like me, you have some sense that in the last week or two, or whatever it may be, month or two, we're now ten months into this strange world of lockdown, and some of you have had the most difficult of times, and if that has given you cause to stray, to wander, to just get lost, this moment I want to pray for every one of us that we are where God intends us to be. May we pray.